Welcome to the School of Athens by Estelle and Leah. Making philosophy more accessible to younger people. Hi guys, welcome to this first episode of our podcast. To remind you guys, I'm Estelle. And I'm Leah. And we're doing existentialism today. Yeah, exactly. Because um, Estelle and I... As you know, maybe if you listen to the first, like to the intro episode, um, we met at the summer school and there we took a course in existentialism. And so now we're experts. We know so much. So we're here to teach you guys. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so what is existentialism? It's like this movement, I guess, on on like why we exist and like it's on human existence, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's also one of the things that I was most interested in uh, starting philosophy because I was like, why am I here? We all die. Like I was having those nihilistic yeah. thoughts. <laughs> it's um, associated with uh, 19th and 20th European philosophers. So including, so me, Leah and I, we have like a debate on who yeah. the biggest existentialist philosophers are. Um, I mean, I guess like this debate is quite universal but um we don't agree on like who's the the it girl of existentialism or like the main (laughs) character of existentialism Uh, yeah i think it's kierkegaard because i think he's the most existentialist writer i think he really gets to the or Mm. at least gets an aspect of of human existence that no other philosopher really captures but you know um For me, um, at least when I first started existentialism, I I thought it'd be uh, Sartre and I mean I don't know much about John John Paul Sartre. I didn't know how to say his name to be honest. Um, the, the, this French name, the name of course of a famous French philosopher from history. So in France, it is said as Sartre, Sartre, as in Jean Paul Sartre. But like I always thought it'd be him. And Nietzsche, who's my favorite guy. Wait. Sorry, actually, did you read um, La Nausée by Sartre or did you read anything by Sartre? No, although okay. I did like associate his name with um, existentialism. And also Simone de Beauvoir, feminist, let's go. Also, yeah. by the way, you knew, like, you obviously know that they were like kind yeah. of dating. Yeah. Yeah. We can talk about that. I, th- I think that's really cute. De Beauvoir, she actually like, I'm pretty sure she criticizes Sartre like a lot. Slay! <laughs> <laughs> right? No, I really like I really like their relationship because it I don't know, it tells like it, it's so existential because they're dating, right? And then he's mm-hmm. uh he wants to like have this like new approach to dating or try out like um being with other people at the same time but having her as like his priority and it just doesn't work out, right? the search for how to how to do something how to live and like failing at it I don't know I really like that yeah because um I listened to this episode on uh Simone de Beauvoir actually and she sort of talks about this ambiguity of existence right um like this discomfort in life which is which is like the whole thing about existence and it's like this state of constant tension between she talks about um sub, between the subject and the object the subject is sort of like the observer and um taking taking life in your own hands 
um whatsapp is like sees sees the day mm-hmm. and object is like um the one being observed and being sort of like i don't know more pushed around and stuff and Simone de Beauvoir, she actually criticizes Sartre in leaning too much in the subject um, in doing like seizing the day. But she talks about like how not everything is possible. Like we have to be more realistic, I guess. But we also can't lean too too much towards the object. It's like this this state of tension between the subject and object. That's that's like the key for her. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's so interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, no, I guess, but Sartre, like, I, I didn't, I haven't read any of his, like, real philosophy. I only read um his novel, La Nausée, and also his play, uh, No Exit. Oh, yeah. Did, did you read that? Um, no, but in Philosophy A-Level, we sort of talked about it briefly when we when we do, like, Death and Afterlife, because he says, like, hell is other people. So we talked mm-hmm. about it briefly, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in what, like, I find interesting is that he's not even super nihilistic I think he's not mm-hmm. saying that there's no meaning in the world I think he's just saying that it's super difficult to find it or no. um yeah Talking I don't know about, like nihilism I mean uh like a lot of people associate I think Nietzsche with with like nihilistic views yeah. and mm-hmm. I guess he is like a lot of people think he's pessimistic, but I really think I really love Nietzsche. Um, his purpose is to spread a more positive message in the end because he talks about fighting this inner struggle and trying to overcome it. And I think that's more optimistic than pessimistic. What, what are you like think? top three like Nietzsche or ideas? You know, what are your top um, three? Nietzsche? That's kind of difficult but um i guess when when at the course we look uh well we learned from luke the whole this whole idea of guilt being this sense of debt between like the creditor and the debt yeah. uh debtor i think mm-hmm. um i thought that was really interesting and how this like evolution of guilt at first is sort of was stemmed from this physical violence this punishment that comes as a in a physical violent form like i'll torture you if you i don't know don't fulfill the promise whereas like now in a modern day society we obviously wouldn't like kill you because you didn't you promised to uh, not eat the chocolate and you did like i'm not going to kill you over that so that in a that sort of turned into guilt i think is what he said and do you agree do you think we live in a world where we are so like so guilt or we feel so guilty all of the time or for for things that we shouldn't really feel guilty for like do you think um i think this guilt because nietzsche says how uh he said that it doesn't it hasn't always been that it's sort of only like developed but i i'm not sure about that because i feel like guilt is something that's so innate in us it's like really linked with conscience we could talk about how consciousness is uh, innate or not, but mm-hmm. um, it's connected to societal expectations. But also, with like in religion, we mm-hmm. if we don't if we we feel guilt because we know that God is seeing is on uh, He sees everything, He knows everything, and yeah. that sort of turn into this sense of guilt. But with like rising atheism, 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like he, I think he says that this is becoming a, even a bigger problem because he says that in the end we owe to somebody who doesn't exist, or we feel guilty for nothing really because we do feel this. Yeah, we do feel guilty, but we don't know who we feel guilty yeah. for, you know, because uh, we don't believe, or we, I mean, as a society, don't believe in God anymore. And then, yeah, yeah and it's like, it's interesting how even when sometimes when you do a seemingly like good thing, you can yeah. still feel guilty for it. Because um, cause also like some people say like, do you ever do a thing that's not selfish? Because even when you do something that's like morally right, like. What if you did it for others to think that you're a good person? Like it's, it's like kind of the root of of what Nietzsche is trying to say, right? That morality just doesn't make sense. Yeah, uh, it's just a a questionable system. Hmm. Let's talk about um, Kierkegaard, your your guy. <laughs> okay, oh, my guy. So why I think that Kierkegaard is so impressive and amazing um, is that I don't know. I just think he's so unique and and obviously mad but um i read like we obviously both read um his work fear and trembling and there he kind of presents this idea that where he retells the story of abraham um who he's a, a figure of the bible and um he is told by god to sacrifice his son and then um his son isaac and then when he's ready to do it, God t- tells him not to do it, you know, that it was only a test of faith if he would actually do it or not. Um, and mm-hmm. Kierkegaard retells the story and says that this moment of faith in which uh, Abraham was ready to even sacrifice his son and he went against all the um, moral standards or against all his beliefs that he held before that that is basically the moment of real faith because even though he knows that he's doing something wrong he still does it uh, Kierkegaard calls it the virtue of the absurd that he he's doing something completely wrong but in the moment it's right because yeah. of faith and I just love this extremely individual aspect of uh of his philosophy because yeah in, in the end in his philosophy it's about the individual being more important than the society that you can be writer that you are basically the entire existence in this moment and that yeah I just think so beautiful and it doesn't have to be religious I think um because it's not only the win of of the religious over the moral you know so the that he's having faith over a moral standard I think it's just saying something about how we live in general because we started the course with this passage and at first I was like oops I chose the wrong course this is not what I like um this is not what I wanted to learn like this is so like faith focused and I guess that's also like a lot of people criticize Kierkegaard for him like having such a focus on religion but it's also like not it has everything to do with religion, but it's also got everything to not to do, do with. Like, it's also, like, something more. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't believe in God, but I think what yeah. he describes, like, as the divine, as this, like, force, it's more of a, not a magical thing, but, like, something that really describes, in a way. Yeah. And also, I like how he, I don't know, his his approach to des- being desperate or being in a state of pain um, as something that's very crucial to to the human experience i think it's so true and he presents his thoughts really nicely <laughs> but yeah no, he's a crazy person though yeah i think he is definitely more than a lot of people think of him 
Mm-hmm. But I guess I don't like him as much as you do. And um, I've I learned a bit more about him. He has like these three values, I think. And he uses um, this metaphor of like a lily and a bird to like mm-hmm. illustrate oh, yeah. his values. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the first one is like the value of silence. And this one I sort of agree with because uh, my mum has always done like meditation and stuff like that. And like he talks about, um, Kugard talks about how noise, he doesn't really like noise. And and like, but for him, I guess this is also the part linked to religion. He said that silence is prayer. Because he said um, the value is in not talking but listening. But I thought like it would like a counter could be like if everyone were silent, like there'd be nothing to listen to. Unless he would say like as listen to like the voice of God, but also like what if the voice of the voice of God is like de- delivered by human voices as well? I don't know. I thought that was quite interesting. I think silence in the sense of uh of like taking a moment or going away from maybe the public realm in a sense from from society like being in your own world for for a minute um, um i think that's extremely important but in the sense of just uh listening and not and not speaking i think listening is very important but it's not really what it, like not important in the sense that i think kierkegaard is kierkegaard's mm-hmm. philosophy is saying you know um yeah i think uh discovering the world in the kierkegaardian sense doesn't really mean like discovering what others think about the world but like about your like discovering your individual but yeah. also one one interesting thing about kierkegaard is that most of his books he writes under uh, under pseudonyms right yeah, so yeah. we should like give a little bit of background about his situation um so basically he lives in a very in in copenhagen right and the 19th century i think or 18th century we can we have to cut this out and then like put the right part in because it's embarrassing if we don't (laughs) i think he lived in copenhagen in the 19th century and basically copenhagen back then was like really small so um there weren't a lot of people at all and uh, he was in a in the small town where everybody knew everybody and everybody was super religious and obviously kikagod's religious but he criticized the church a lot as well Mm, Um, actually sorry um because yeah, I think that's also linked to his like value of silence. Because um he had a problem with the church of his time because I think they they described God and like the kingdom of God with like really fancy words and like just just like it's really unnecessary descriptions. And he thinks like stripping that down, I think, is like the way to go. Yeah, exactly. So well, but Kierkegaard then he um he finds this girl and he really likes her. her oh yeah, really- I forgot about that. Remember? Yeah. So, so actually, yeah, I loved talking about her in in the class. It was so funny. Oh my God, remind me what what happened between them. Yeah. So he really likes her, right? He's he has a huge crush on Regine. Um, oh, yeah. And and Regine, he she wants to marry him obviously but then he, they're about to marry um and i think they're engaged even and then he's like no sorry i can't do it and then the question is like why we love each other so much and it's like mutual and whatever and then he says because just because like i will ruin your life there is no reason but i just know that i will ruin your life and um that's kind of also again with the moment of like having faith instead of uh going 
um or following the rules right um I he's so mad about. <laughs> yeah but he's like I don't know yeah he, I would be so mad um like if I were Regine but then he just decides not to marry her and then he acts crazy like in front of the whole like super small town for the rest of his life and so that she's not like blamed for being weird um um and for destroying the engagement because mm -hmm. sorry so that it doesn't affect uh the girl right yeah so that she has like a good reputation and he's actually super sweet because he then just acts crazy for his, the rest of his life he like does weird stuff in front of people and and then he writes like so many books like you can look it up he writes um really a lot of books oh. under under pseudonyms actually like he just broke his heart but like also he broke hers so i don't know like oh yeah who did right. she marry in the end do you know sorry who did um is a regime is nyash <laughs> she married another guy <laughs> yeah it's super sad he um he talks about this relationship so much in his later work right so he always says um or not really directly but indirectly he always speaks of uh for example the knight of faith yeah who believes in his love with the princess but he does he does the movement of the absurd so mm -hmm. he doesn't uh yeah so he doesn't get with her and i think that's really sweet that he's so he's so troubled by that relationship actually there's like the night of faith this the night of infinite resignation is that what it what it was called and what what was the story again with these knights yeah so then knight of uh, faith is basically um first he's just a knight right and then he um he becomes the knight of resignation because that's also something very important for kierkegaard that a, a crucial part of faith is uh doubt so mm -hmm. first he has to become the knight of infinite of resignation so he has to believe that what he is doing or what he's about to do is absolutely wrong and that there's no or for example that he's there's no way that he'll ever get the princess you know because he because there's for example just like a social circumstance that um yeah. prohibits them being together so he has to first of all accept that it's completely wrong and then um he has to make the movement uh of infinity i think um basically means that he um accepts this this wrongness and decides to have faith anyways you know like with abraham the move like the movement of faith he has to um believe in the absurd basically and then he becomes the, the knight of faith yeah so like these stories all sort of show this like leap of faith this whole thing where you think where you're doing like the most morally wrong thing like the most societally unacceptable unacceptable thing but you you do it because you you know like it's the right yeah, thing. exactly and that's why doubt is so important for him because he says you have to question everything like every belief you've ever held or that that you have been taught because you might actually be right you know and so you just and that's also to... the thing about philosophy like doubting everything that you you think is right yeah and that's like what we both love about philosophy right that yeah. you really have to question everything now that's really interesting talking about like Kierkegaard's life let's um switch to my guy Nietzsche yeah. um 
talked about and, him a lot now. <laughs> yeah, I don't know much about his romantic life, but um, I think the most interesting part about his life is sort of near the end. A lot of people know that he lost his mind, but like why, we don't know. But um, basically, uh, he, before he lost his mind, like his, his cognitive abilities were always a bit whiffy whoppy but um basically he decided to live by himself in the mountains i think um to like do the philosopher stuff contemplate life or whatever um but apparently like one day he uh came upon this uh a horse who was getting which is like this horse was like getting beaten by by someone and um this is like the key the key moment of his life and Nietzsche like suddenly like jumps before the horse and tries to protect it and like he like embraces the horse and he's like he's crying so hard he's he's like in an emotional state like never seen before he's in he's in pain for the horse and he's crying so hard that he lost consciousness actually and when he finally regained consciousness he um lost all cognitive ability he's basically lost his mind and that was like that's like the end of his sanity i find that really interesting and also one of like the biggest things that draws me to nietzsche it sounds super interesting yeah because like last time you you said like nietzsche didn't seem like an animal supporter or like yeah yeah because i mean part of what nietzsche says is that there's this not natural order but that everybody has these natural abilities right so that some people are just stronger than others and some people are just weak at least from his reflections on what that says about um you know morality I got the feeling that he doesn't really have sympathy with the weak that much so um yeah I was kind of surprised that that he would um protect or that we would see the need to protect something that's weak from basically what uh its fate would be you know no i think i think Nietzsche actually he really sympathizes with i i think he does sympathize with the weak i think he he knows the importance of nature he's quite in tune with um like this sort of hierarchy in in society and in nature he actually in his philosophy he talks about this like uh master and slave morality that we did um learn in the course briefly yeah exactly i mean that's like kind of what what i was trying or what i think is so different like you know in that moment uh, when he saves the words from from the rest of, of what he's saying because i don't know how he says that weak people are the only ones who fall into the trap of religion you know and how people who um have the strength to not um believe in in God. So maybe we should give like a little bit of context here, right? Nietzsche's basically quite opposite to Kierkegaard in terms of like God and relig- religion. He famously said uh God is dead and um everyone thinks I mean he is quite anti-religion because he thinks that um you're being like manipulated by like re- like this religious beliefs. So I guess that sort mm-hmm. of makes him with like the feeling of guilt because of like god how like yeah you're being guilt tripped into a religion yeah, yeah exactly and that basically some people who are strong and understand or can face the nihilistic world uh and can face that there is no reason or no god and 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 so on 
that they um, take advantage of the weak and basically yeah. use their fear for their own good. Um, but like even even with a godless society, he's he sort of talks about how we still live a, like a constant life of like denial, and this is sort of almost a new kind of existentialism with without God because we're in this like disinterested universe. I think he said, like these like bad desires that make you feel guilty are become a part of you, and you like. You you wonder you're like oh why why do I want these things that I shouldn't want, and and then you like internally punish yourself with with guilt. Exactly. And um, I hope you guys enjoyed listening to us as much as we enjoyed talking about our favorite people. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if you have any suggestions or like tips for us, um, um, we are super happy to hear them. Excited to see you next week. Look forward to Greek philosophers for next week. Thank you for coming to our lesson. We hope to see you again next week. 